this week on the Back Table Podcast. So if you do one intervention and you wait a few weeks, that's just continual process for them where you're just waiting and waiting. It's like the wait and see tribe. And it, it, I don't think that's the best if you have the ability to achieve more at once then because if you do an intervention above the ankle and you know you have disease below, if you don't improve that disease below, the concern is, is your outflow going to affect what you just did? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're learning more that if you don't improve that outflow now, your intervention may not do as well. That's what we're trying to tease out and figure out, but just theoretically and in my mind, it makes more sense. It makes total sense. I mean, we've definitely seen our interventions higher up not be as durable when our outflow sucks. We say this with like, when you do like covered stunts in the SFA and pop, we say mm-hmm. the outflow matters, the outflow matters. Well, the outflow below matters for the rest of it too. So exactly. You hit like a stopgap or a water hammer and you're not going to get much success. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular. You can find all our previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is Sabine Dond as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, interventional radiologist Dr. Kumar Madassari, coming to us from Rush University in Chicago. Welcome back, Kumar. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, It's great to see all the advancements in this Backtable system. This is fantastic. Right? I know. It's been over... Three years since you and I were on this uh, back in August 2017. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, I know pretty much everyone knows you, Kumar. I mean, based on the fact that you're you're about to break 6,000 followers on Twitter. But uh, Boy, for those, those, who knows what that means? <laughs> for those who don't know you, um, why don't you give us a little introduction? Uh, so the name is Kumar Madisari from Chicago. I've spent uh, pretty much my entire life here. Um, unfortunately, I had a run in with you maybe about 10 years ago. When you were training here, uh, yep. initially I was supposed to go to surgery. Uh, then I made the victorious leap out of surgery into radiology as a means to get to IR. And all of this I did at Rush. Um, kind of a homer, but there's a reason why I'm a homer. I, I really like it there. We're doing some great things and have a fantastic squad uh, that we work together. So live in the North Shore of uh, Chicago. Uh, love this city, no matter what anybody says. Uh, despite the snow, I'll still put the city above anybody else. Most of my time, my outpatient practice is dedicated to critical limb ischemia, CLTI, whatever you want to, variation of it you want to call, but basically limb preservation. That's that's all I really care about from an outpatient practice perspective. But being a tertiary academic center, we cover everything. So from head to toe, cancer to whatever else, but I like to dedicate most of my time on awareness and limb salvage, uh, limb preservation. Um, and that's majority of me have, you know, two wonderful kids and wonderful wife. And uh, that's pretty much it, you know, Chicago for life. <laughs> that's awesome living the dream until, but until not until not <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh you're doing great things out there i miss chicago you know it's it's uh such a great city um and just uh making my mark in la as much as i can now but um it's been like we mentioned over three years since you and i talked about stop the chop hashtag stop the chop and uh, we focused on tibial intervention and and how to really um be successful there, but, but a lot's happened over the last three years. And now we talk about below ankle and, and below ankle interventions. What, what does that encompass to you? To me, I think what we've realized uh, in the last maybe five years more than that is that the work that we do above the knee and to above the ankle has been very important in, our, in, our, in terms of revascularization and trying to improve flow. But what I think we had to grasp and understand is that what's almost more important or equally important is what's the outflow. And that's where the 
below the ankle comes into play. I don't think, you know, half a decade ago we were focusing on that. And now we're realizing that we could do all these great things, you know, in the SFA, the pop, the each tibial artery, and we know the variants, but none of that matters because if your outflow is garbage, nothing's going to work. It's just like when you deal with dialysis, fistulas and maintenance, we learn this and we sh- we're learning to apply this. So for me, below the ankle now is pretty much where I think the crux of everything we do is going to rely and what we, what we achieve in terms of wound healing and limb preservation is going to be what the outflow is. And we're learning how to adapt our techniques and tools. And we have a far ways to go to figure out how to optimize it, but at least we're, we're in the sandbox for this area a lot more now. And we're trying to optimize our approaches to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how often, you know, below ankle, we, we're talking about, you know, the Gertalis pedis artery, the plantars and the pedal arch. I mean, people throw the word pedal arch, pedal loop all the time. Yeah. What, um, how often are you seeing disease involve, uh, you know, uh, the arteries below the ankle? So I think it, you know, partly depends on your practice patterns. And for me, it's a mostly uh, really severe, complex tibiopedal disease and failed at other attempts or other places. So in those, those patients, I'm seeing majority of my cases having severe disease in that pedal circulation or that uh, outflow below the ankle. So I'd say most of my patients that I'm bringing in or taking on have, you know, I'd say 70 to 80% have moderate to severe disease. And there's um, Colorado scales and calcifications for the, you know, the pedal uh, severity of disease. So in that realm, I put it in moderate to severe in most of my patients, but I think that's going to vary on who, who and where you're practicing. If you're taking all comers coming in from your screening and all that, you may not see that. And it's great to have good pedal intact flow because then you know that the rest of your intervention is going to be great. <laughs> when you do most of the ages I see, I'm like, okay, like <laughs> we're starting with the baseline of not much in the foot. So yep. I'm seeing it quite often routinely for me. What is there any sort of um, tissue loss pattern that you see in someone with, with really severe uh, pedal disease? I mean, is it is it like a uh, an ulcer, gangrenous toe, or just like a completely, you know, the forefoot's getting lost. Unfortunately, I think we're seeing a lot of forefoot uh, tissue disease, tissue loss disease in these patients with minimal to no uh, intact pedal circulation. If it's all uh, sad, you know, small vessel disease. Yeah, um, we're seeing quite a bit of tissue loss to start with, and that's because we've missed the we've missed the chance on a lot of these patients. Uh, we, the system we've kind of failed them years ago when we should have capped these things and optimized them if we could ahead of time with smoking cessation, which we know is one of the biggest problems for this diabetic control, renal failure. These things have a compounded effect that we're so behind the eight ball that by the time we're seeing them, now we're playing catch up and it's really tough, but we see that tissue loss in that forefoot getting close to a TMA. Uh, that's what we're seeing in a lot of these patients with zero to minimal circulation. Every now and then you'll see uh, a digital ulceration that you you see the small vessel disease, but you know that I would say for me, I'm seeing the former more than the latter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these people also, you know, uh, come in so late and when the disease is so far advanced, I mean, uh, it's really true limb salvage at that point when, when, uh, you're going, you know, quote unquote for the loop. (laughs) Right. So talking about that, I mean, um, a lot of these patients, at least, you know, what I see in my practice is is this multi-level disease. They might have pop disease, and tibial disease and or pedal disease. And so, you know, how do you approach tandem disease? I mean, you, you have this patient, let's say they have, they, they're, they're digit, they're, their digit looks gangrenous. So, um, you know, it's not a small ulcer. 
and they have, you know, both tibial and pedal disease. How, how do you approach that patient? So, you know, I think this is an interesting discussion because I think, you know, me and you and all of our people that we know in this world go to a lot of the same conferences, hear a lot of the same things. And this comes up quite often, like how much is too much or how much is enough? And uh, I know we don't have a great uh, predictor right now on the table, but for me and the patient population I see, it's get everything done that I can at that time. Most of these patients have enough things going on. Half of them, I'd say, are on dialysis. So three days of the week, they're stuck in a chair. Then the other two days, they have left for their doctor's appointments and if I have to do something. So bringing these patients in, staging them, doing one thing, see how they progress for the next few weeks, then doing another thing. When you're at tissue loss, for me, if I can achieve inline flow with you know some type of perfusional satisfaction, as far as I can tell, and non-invasive improvement on the spot, that's my goal. That's not always achievable. Cause you might run into, you know, a above the ankle intervention that takes a long time. And if, mm-hmm. if there's any clinical concern for the patient or something else, that's fine. But if I could accomplish everything in that setting and the patient's safe and we're okay, then that's going to happen. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, um, totally. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, um, we talked about, you know, actually when, when we talked about uh, our tibial intervention back in the day on back table, you know, some people would say, oh, just do one tibial artery and then get a dodge. But we both talked about how we, we just try to do everything we can. Um, and I think that's really important for these patients um, to really establish that flow yeah. to the wound. Um, I think it's important because think about it, like we do active wound care clinic and we're doing debriding wounds, initial staging and treating them. And these patients, some of them have gone go in there for months every week. It's almost like <clears throat> a weekly dialysis session almost. They're coming in for debriding once a week. So if you do one intervention and you wait a few weeks, that's just continual process for them where you're just waiting and waiting. It's like the wait and see tribe. And it, it, I don't think that's the best if you have the ability to achieve more at once then because if you do an intervention above the ankle and you know you have disease below, if you don't improve that disease below, the concern is, is your outflow going to affect what you just did? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're learning more that if you don't improve that outflow now, you're intervention may not do as well. That's what we're trying to tease out and figure out, but just theoretically and in my mind, it makes more sense. It makes total sense. I mean, we've definitely seen our interventions higher up, not be as durable when our outflow sucks. We say this with like, when you do like covered stunts in the SFA and pop, we say mm-hmm. the outflow matters, the outflow matters. Well, the outflow below matters for the rest of it too. So exactly. You hit like a stop gap or a water hammer and you're not going to get much success. No, absolutely. Do you, um, in, in below ankle interventions, is there anything, you know, we've talked about direct or indirect or angiographisomes, some people call them woundosomes, which I like. I mean, yep. does that play into your role of how aggressive you are on a pedal intervention or do you just try to get what you can? For me, it's usually like a de-escalation or a, a, it's like a stepwise. If I can get direct flow to that wound, it's very important always to know where your wound is, put a marker or you should know exactly where it is. And if whatever intervention I did, if I can see direct uh, wound jasome blush, I'm happy. If that's not going to be possible, then indirect, we know from the limited data we have from the retrospective data that that's better. And also let's remember something improved is better than nothing improved. So if you increase perfusion and we're seeing this with DVA, it hopefully will induce some kind of uh, improved perfusion. So if you can't get direct because it's not possible and you reviewed it with you and whoever else you trust as your because you always need a second opinion. You know, we all do. And that's part of our humility. Um, and you should have that. 
If you feel there's no way to get a direct, then get the indirect because you're going to provide something improved and then come back to the table when you redraw and see if there's something else to do. But to me, it's direct first, then indirect. And if all else, find something else, find DBA, find something else. I I think if you don't find something, there's nothing, but getting that satisfaction of seeing the wound blush, I always do a final AP picture or whichever view shows me that wound area. I want to see either direct perfusers or micro perfusers or indirect, whatever I want to see, I want to see something increase that region to make me know I'm at a good endpoint. We're still yeah. learning the, the, the perfusion imaging and thermal imaging, all this stuff. I've been playing around with one of them uh, to see it looks at increased oxygen, the hemoglobin that they can scan. Who knows? Um, we don't know enough about that yet, but for me, you need some kind of endpoint. I don't know. What, do you, what are your that, thoughts? I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I, I was just thinking it's very important. You know, when I started doing um, uh, peripheral vascular disease, I, I'd only get like a lateral foot view at the end, but I started getting more AP views. And, and I, I really encourage our listeners to get AP views, especially if you're doing um, below ankle, because you'll be surprised to see what's going where yeah. um, that, that you don't see on the lateral. And again, if it's direct, indirect, I, it's just so satisfying and, and relieving when you see increased perfusion to the area of the wound. And, and, and we all know that that increases your success. We know this from being interventional radiology. We do this all the time, but there's, you need more than one view to understand what's going on. So same way for me, a completion image has a lateral and then it also has an AP with the cephalad angulation of the eye. So then the foot kind of comes down. You're looking at the top of the foot as if you're visually examining it. And that really changes your perspective, like you're saying. And just for trainees, you see that what actually a pedal loop looks like. It doesn't look like a loop. It looks like a crisscross. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. It's things that you learn by doing these things and you have to educate to understand, are you optimizing everything? Yeah, no, I mean that once I started doing AP views, it was, it's just, it was so much more information that I was losing uh, on the lateral. Um, well, I know a lot of our listeners want to know, you know, how, how do you do pedal loop? I mean, that's, that's a big question. Um, what's the technique, you know, it's, it's, it's a little daunting, um, when you think about it, but let's just kind of go over what, what you do, um, you know, and, and, uh, what other kind of tips you can give our listeners. So, you know, you can start from your access and devices and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think when you're entertaining, uh, TBO pedal at all, or pedal intervention, as most of my patients, I think your approach matters more than anything else sometimes. And the approach is for me, if possible, integrate access on that same groin. I think what we learn is that the shorter the distance to treat, the better success you have with your tools, the support structure, the less uh, length of wires and catheters. A lot, if your patient's you know, close to six feet or above, you're going to have trouble up and over uh, to do a pedal loop because getting sufficient wire purchase, catheter purchase, balloon length, um, the, the majority of products out there are tough to do from an up and over approach and through the pedal circulation. So if at all possible, always integrate down that same leg. Now, part of that is knowing what the inflow is like. And that needs to come from either non-invasive imaging that you have, your physical exam combined with that, or, you know, some people do uh, CTAs or they have a prior diagnostic angio. Uh, Some people will do a radial axis to shoot it and then go from there. Uh, One thing that we'll do every now and then or whenever we feel appropriate is we can flip the sheath. And we've talked about that before in other situations where you get that same side access, you go up to check everything, and then you come flip the sheath and you go down once you're satisfied with what it looks like. Um, so access integrates great. The Panis retraction system, not sponsored by them or anything like that, but that's been a game changer for uh, the Midwest Panis for me. Uh, there's patients who have Panis down to their mid thighs, but on the table, I can't see any Panis. And that thing 
it makes a world of difference when you're doing integrated access because you want a safe closure or, you know, hemostasis and that panis is nothing but uh, a danger zone if you don't get it out of the way. So good prep and that involves having good uh, discussion with your, your techs and team to get the panis out of the way, integrate access. Um, you can watch under ultrasound to make sure you're going on the SFA, get a sheath down. And then from there, uh, for me, usually I'm always in an 014 system when I'm going down below the knee. I don't play with the 018. It's just, I'm going to end up in the 014 because most of the patients have end-stage renal, diabetes, their vessels are small, they're calcified. 018 for me, below, you know, mid or below the tibs is not going to get anywhere. Um, then the question always comes about pedal retrograde access. Uh, there's a lot of operators or, or increasing operators will do primary pedal, which for me, it's a little tough because I, I need to see the above uh, access and flow first. And I like the support because half the time I'd say I'm snaring something. So having that uh, access from above for me for uh, tibial pedal disease, I, I need two accesses at the minimum. Uh, nowadays, I think having the extra tibial access or pedal access is probably in the range of 50 to 75%, somewhere in there of cases that'll have some additional adjunctive access. Um, and for that, I don't use sheets. I don't know about you. Um, for the pedal access, I just use the wire and uh, inner of the micropuncture uh, sheet, the inner three. And then if I do a catheter, it'll just be barebacked. Yeah. A lot of people will put a tibial, you know, a radial sheet, slender sheath. And, and then if you're going to do that radial cocktail, but for me, uh, I'm not doing the interventions from below. So really, I just need it as an access point. Um, and I still have to reverse to go my wire and my intervention past that access point. So the less I have in there, the better for me. And I, I think a lot of us consider operating that way. Um, but for the loop part, you know, uh, I think things that help is a patient that can remain still. And I think that's probably the bane of many of our assistants. See, so having yeah. a patient keep their foot still is critical. And whether that be, they're just really good. They have no sensation in their foot or you have general anesthesia. I think those are things that are going to really help you. Um, I wouldn't entertain doing complex pedal work or a loop in a patient that's just restless leg or moving or just in pain. Um, possible. And I think part of that, maybe, you know, too, maybe you've seen this as part of their mindset of that discussion with the patient. Um, I can remember doing some live, some cases, uh, scrubbed in, in, in Leipzig at Link Hospital. And I remember asking, uh, the, the physician I was with, we were scrubbed in, I go like, what's the, what's the sedation protocol? He goes, what's sedation? And <laughs> they give just lidocaine oh. and, and, uh, the patient was like a rock. And this is not just one patient, multitude of patients that I saw that day. And the patient had some mild pain in the SFA. So he just to mess some lidocaine around the SFA directly through the skin. And I was like, this is unreal. But he said, you know, part of this is when the patients know what's coming or they know what they're going to get, that's it. I think yeah. we have a little bit of trouble here with that, you know, you know, anesthesia for, anesthesia for a pick line. So I think that's part of the thing is having a patient that keep that foot still because for tibial pedal interventions, I'd love to hear your talk on this, but uh, I use a lot of the DSA road mapping. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, that direct injection from the pop or pedal vessel, tibial vessel, where you get that that really that path where you might want to go uh having that foot still with the dsa roadmap really helps for me kind of increase decrease the contrast i can watch where i'm going um, that helps a lot now heavily calcified patients sometimes you can just watch how you're going uh, under the fluoro evis is another way uh, if you have somebody else to help hold you while you're manipulating this uh giadifati and them love uh showing that i think it's a great adjunctive tool if you have somebody else to to hold the probe for you and kind of do that uh, I don't do, I don't do much EVIS for that, but, um, I think DSA fluoroscopically, uh, is more than enough for most cases for me. 
Uh, navigating that loop is tricky, especially on the lateral view. You've probably seen that, you know, you're seeing and you're trying to find where that actual planter loop is towards the TMA site, that TMA level, um, and then navigating it. I think some of the hardest parts are getting your support systems across that area, um, especially when they're calcified because you get these kinked areas of calcification. That becomes a little bit tricky. Um, so for me, it's the integrate access, adjunct to pedal access, and then um, going around the loop with DSA roadmap, either general anesthesia or a patient that's not moving. If the patient's moving on your procedure and you can't add anesthesia at that point, that's a situation where I'd say reschedule it. 100%. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree using DSA um, uh, overlay or roadmapping to, and, and carefully manipulating your, your, your wire across the loop. I mean, uh, as you know, it, it usually likes to select everything except yeah. the loop, some digital artery, metatarsal artery yeah. here, there. And you really don't want to mess. You don't, you don't want to force anything because if you're going to trash that more than it is, then again, we get into our outflow issue. Right. For, do you ever, do you, do you have any kind of recommended uh, 0.14 soft wires that you like a lot. Yeah. I and mean, people are always asking that on Twitter. Like, anyone posts a, a pedal loop case, they're like, "Okay, like, what's your devices? What's like? Is there anything that you you kind of start off with? Yeah, um, or anything like that? I think you know. I think that's a good point. Everybody has their own tool bag, so whatever works for one person, they'll claim is gospel. So yeah. by no means do I think whatever I use or we use is gospel. It's whatever you have in your arsenal that you've gotten accustomed to. And having a sequence, you know, sequential approach to what you're going to use. So for me, I usually start with a, a Hydra ST wire from Cook. It's a very soft, malleable. It really gets buggered up if you start going the wrong way, but it really goes nicely through uh, cha micro channels if you have one. Um, the key is to if you if you buckle it up somewhere though, you're pretty much gone. It it's becomes a pigtail. <laughs> um, but from then, I have a choice of wires that I'll use. I'll use a Commando 14ES or what I've used quite a bit more lately is the Advantage 014. Um, <laughs> and then there's some Asahi wires that I'll throw. But if, if I'm at the fourth wire choice, uh, you might want to change the approach a little bit. <laughs> so everybody has their their arsenals. You know, uh, I think our, a lot of our mutual colleagues that we know use like one brand set. But I think getting a feel for multiple ones, seeing what their limitations are, understanding uh, tip load and weighted tips and stuff like that, I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. I mean, I, I, I guess for me, I've been kind of going on the uh, 014 Glide Advantage wire that I've kind of been having some some good success with that. But I am 100% about it's every wire is is whatever you're you're comfortable with. I mean, you've learned the weight, you, you learn the feedback. So it's one wire does not fit all for every yeah. operator and procedure. Not by any means. We've had to go down to, a, I've gone down to a Synchrosoft NeuroWire just because yeah. Sometimes a retrograde, you can't get anything there and it's tough, but if you can get something up there, then you can exchange it, you know? So yeah. knowing every wire available to you in your, in your area, or if you have to bring something and having at least three is what I would say, three different kinds, at least. Totally. And, and, um, you've talked about, you, you, you do with an 014 system, you know, you're, you're, you're working on the pedal arteries with an 014 wire support catheter. What, um, you know, what devices do you say you should not, whether whether it's sizing, what, what devices should not go through the loop? Um, specifically, like, I mean, would you would you do an 018 system? Uh, would you uh, perform atherectomy through a loop? What, what kind of stuff would you not do or advise listeners not to do? Uh, 
you know, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Yeah, I, know. I think, I think if you're doing, if you're at the stage of atherectomy means that you've already successfully gotten, uh, your basic, uh, tough spot, which is getting a wire and cancer across, or at least a wire. If you've gotten a wire across and you're com- sufficient with that, then that's great. So you've already had one, you know, a high level. Now in terms of atherectomy, uh, an 018 system, you can use an 018 system, whether it's balloons, um, uh, catheters, that's fine. And it, some people do prefer that. It just depends on what your vessel size is and how trackable your system is. And that's different for every patient population or whatever you're dealing with. But in terms of atherectomy, I know people like to use the small hawk. Sometimes I, in the few times I'll do pedal atherectomy, it'll, or loop atherectomy, it'll be a CSI micro. Um, I don't think using the bigger, and that's the 1.25 micro. I don't think using the the bigger ones, the one five or the two is maybe a good idea there. Cause no matter what, you're going to embolize something. Yeah. And it's going to cause micro, uh, macroemboli in a micro vessel is what I call it. Um, yeah, you may not appreciate That's a nice, uh, relative term. Yeah, right. yeah. It's not big. And if you're looking at the SFA, it's not <laughs> a big emboli, but when you're talking about a yeah, half a millimeter digital vessel that you need to get that toll, sir, that's a big problem. So I think for me and the micro is really just to create any lumen to then do my ballooning, you know, it's uh it's vessel compliance, right? So that's what the micro for me is, and now, you know, with the newer laser systems that are smaller and, and has theoretically less emboli, although we all know there's some level of it, um, that might be something to use there too. Um, but other people are using directional, uh, around the loop. I've seen enough people show those cases, but you know, for me, directional, I still see, uh, material in my filter when I use directional, cause I usually only use it for the fem pop area. So yeah. that I worry about as well. And maneuvering the nose cone around it sometimes maybe a little difficult, but yeah. For me, it's a very precarious loop for me. So just a micro uh, orbital for me is about what I'll do. Laser, maybe something I add more to that. Uh, how about you? What do you, uh, what are you finding? You know, yeah, I mean, the farthest I've done athro is to like the distal lateral plantar. I'm still a little, little uh, based on some things that have happened in the past, just getting something like that through a loop. I'm just really worried. Um, uh, I've seen great cases posted and yeah. people, you know, we've talked about it in our, in our group chats about doing atherectomy through there, but it's, um, I, uh, I, if I were to push myself through the loop, it'd probably be a micro, uh, CSI. Uh, but, yeah, my- and anecdotally, I don't know about you, but there's that common area in that DP, the Dressel's pedis that has like a tram track calcification, a lot of oh, patients. Yeah. That's a great area where a small spin of something, whatever you want to do, or yep. micro would really be beneficial. And like you said, the, maybe the proximal planter, but often I don't, see the need to do the atherectomy in the actual loop mid portion yeah, of the loop exactly. i haven't seen that and that's kind of your area where you gotta be really careful because that's where all your digitals are coming off of in that area so um i think the atherectomy helps more for that dp and the proximal planters like you're talking about that's typically mm-hmm. the hardest parts to get your devices across totally um Here, here's a situation that happens all the time um you get across the loop right you know and, and you, you put a you know they put a balloon across it. Um, you know, your balloon is going across a DP loop and lateral plantar as much more. And, you know, the, the flow is pretty crappy before, right? but post plasty, you've got water hammer effect. Mm. What, what, what's going on? Um, most likely, um, or hopefully I should say, and how do you get out of that? So it depends on what your outflow was to start with, right? So mm-hmm. if you had no outflow to start with, then that means that you, no matter what you're intervening, you're going to get a water hammer, even if you create a channel. But if you had some flow before, chances are you got some emboli or you got less likely spasm. Uh, first steps always in my mind is if I, 
if I see something that I didn't expect, um, I'll first make sure heparinized properly, get some uh, nitroglycerin down there. And sometimes a heparin and nitro cocktail right down the vessel mm-hmm. I'm in, the tibial vessel I'm into. Cool. You can get a micro, through your support catheter, just get it as far as possible and drip a cocktail mix of heparin, nitro, and if you want a calcium channel blocker. Um, those things tend to help quite a bit in the beginning. Uh, there's some times where you have some maybe clot that developed in the process with the emboli that you may want to consider lysing that patient. I know it's not something great and you don't want to do that in the outpatient setting, but if you've lost some flow, sometimes your best option is let it lice and let open up whatever it might open up and then come back the next day and see if you can improve that. But if you ruled out spasm, uh, and then you're working with, um, plaque or, you know, microemboli, that's going to be tough. If you have macroemboli, you can try to, if you know where you think you might be dealing with it, you could take the cat three, uh, mm-hmm. aspiration, or if you want to use a small catheter and aspirate, but it really depends on what you think cause that problem. But lacing it is never a bad thing. Every now and then we'll have a success from letting it lace for a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly how to approach it too. I mean, what about spasm too? Cause, cause we do get a lot of spasm in that loop. Um, depending, especially if you're oversizing a balloon or, yeah. or, or it's just a sensitive area. If, if you look at those turns, what is, is that your pretty much your cocktail heparin and nitro? Uh, yeah. what, what's the max amount of nitro would you give, uh, down there? Is there a max? I, I think there is a theoretical max when I talk to anesthesiology. That's usually my source <laughs> for all of things. Yeah. Uh, I've never really given more than, in a case, I'd say more than a thousand uh, yeah, yeah. mics. Yeah. I haven't given more than that, but I'll give aliquots usually of anywhere from 150 to 200, depending on the <laughs> patient's pressure. I don't think we see a lot of systemic uh, BP effects from the from injecting it distally. Um, yeah. So I'll give one to 200 aliquots, give it like a minute or two or three, and then see you know what the flow looks like. There's any improvement. If you think that's a dissection flap or something limiting it, then you could try to balloon some more. Mm-hmm. Um, but giving periodic aliquots to see what you're doing, I, I, I don't know what the maximum is. No, I, uh, I agree. I, I think a thousand is in my head. That's like, you know. I also don't want to find out what the maximum is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, let's not find that out. Um, uh, you know, I've also been trying to uh, mess with Rapamil a little bit too. Um, uh, you know, we use that above the neck a lot and yeah. and I've been using it below the infrainguinal interventions and it's been pretty good. So do you see you know, do you see an immediate effect from that or it takes a little while, right? It takes a little bit of time and you drip it really slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you literally put in like a, a CC over a minute and you just slow and you just you can just do like um five milligrams really kind of slowly or five to ten and then see and I've had some success with that. So you can yeah. kind of but again watch the blood pressure. Yeah, the one thing about uh, delivering that medication distally is that if you have a loop, then you might have to lose your wire axis. But then what you can do is just put a check flow yeah. on the back yeah. of your support catheter. And that totally. sometimes without leaking through much of the membrane, you'll be able to deliver it while you maintain totally. your access. Um, but, I, you know, I think, that's a good tip. I think those digital, if you lose a digital's outflow, it's going to be a tough spot to get anything to really flow through. And so if your before was crap, then that may explain that doing anything from above is not going to change that much if you have no good actual native perfusers, you know? Yeah. You have to weigh that with what's going on. I know. Um, you know, there was, uh, um, a comment on Twitter about, uh, pedal loop interventions and, and I thought I'd kind of bring it up and, and kind of talk about it because it's pretty important. It's, um, and the comment was, was pedal loop interventions are overrated and abused. I've seen more trashed feet than happy endings when inexperienced operators decide everyone needs a lupoplasty. It's a pretty strong comment, but um, 
um, there's definitely a lot of truth in there. I just want to kind of comment about it. I mean, yeah. some some of our listeners here may have not tried a pedal loop. Is that does that mean they shouldn't do it, or how should they approach trying to do a, a pedal loop if the patient needs it? Yeah, you know, I think I think we've learned this over the years. Uh, Twitter's great and Twitter is horrible, and social media in general. I mean, I think Twitter's the downside is that it becomes a voice box for people to speak how they would never speak to you in person. Uh, that's a very strong statement, but it's actually pretty apt for a lot of cases. We see a lot of people doing things um, that they probably shouldn't do, but that doesn't mean they should never do it. They just don't know maybe how to do it or have the experience or asking for help. Uh, I think what we're seeing is a lot of people approaching playing in that space below the ankle without much experience or backup or a second person to, hey, what do you think about this? Is this worth it? Because, you know, with experience, uh, you learn and you get that spidey sense of this isn't going to be a good idea. But you have a lot of people who get a wire cross and the excitement goes, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hit that now. Yeah. So the question is, do you need that pedal loop, the plantar arch uh, for all cases? I don't think so. You know, I think it depends on what your goal is. You need to have a goal before you start that case. What's my end point here? If you're doing the loop for the loop because you think that's the end all be all, then you should stop because you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think you need the loop if you have already established direct flow and it's not working or if it's a, if it's a, if it's a digit ulcer, uh, the loop definitely in my mind helps because if you get a loop, you're increasing the, the digital perfusers that you're going to get from the loop, whether you're creating a loop from an intact loop, or if you're creating even half a loop from the anterior tib or posterior tib, you're going to increase the flow through those digital perfusers. If you're talking about a toe wound. Um, but doing it for all comers, if you have a heel wound, I don't know if that loop is going to be your primary goal. If you have a PT, you can target, yep. um, you know, so it really depends on what you're dealing with. So if you have a PT or a perineal that you can get in line flow as much as possible, studies of small reports have shown that even a perineal that's in line with good perfusion, it can be sufficient for uh, wound healing and rest pain. So of course, if you already have that, but you need another vessel, it's a different story. If you've done a PT intervention and it's still not staying open, then the loop may help you because you need some of that outflow to come around. Totally. Um, if you just create the loop unnecessarily, it may not help. You might get competitive flow from the AT now, you know, so, so it really depends on where your wound is. So I do agree that it's being overdone. I disagree with how aggressively that statement may sound. Yeah. But I think that, that comes with education and learning to ask each other for advice and help and you know, we have such a big network around the world now and people should feel free to ask for help and ask ideas and ask suggestions and doing this in a vacuum is dangerous to the patient. So I think Agreed. there's part of that statement that's very true. Yeah. Part, part of it is just because of a lack of understanding. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you did touch on, I mean, asking questions. Um, I think plenty of us are, are there, you know, if, if you have a question or, or, or a comment, I think um, most, if not all of us are totally open to, to start those conversations and help out. You the know. other thing I'll say is a lot of people who naysay a lot of this work, uh, it's because they're limited in their imagination or their skill or their mm -hmm. experience. And I think uh, that's not fair either because there's a lot of people who are maybe learning and maybe we'll learn that some of this isn't the best, but all that we're doing is we're trying to decrease the limb loss. So yeah. I think anything that we're doing, and you know, most people, I don't think it's a lucrative thing because tibiopedal interventions is not financially lucrative for the most part. It takes a lot of time takes a lot of work. So I don't think sure. a lot of, I, I don't have an OBL, but yeah. in my mind, uh, you may know better and you guys out in the audience know better, but I don't think working with like severely calcified dorsal artery, <laughs> digital artery is lucrative financially. So I hope it's not a lucrative thing. So take that out yeah. of the picture. 
Yeah. But then it's the ego or you're doing what's right for the patient. So I hope it's the latter. And, uh, you know, I think it's understanding. We don't, again, we don't know enough to know, but some of the studies, if you look at, there's, you know, a lot of Asia uh, reports out there and, and retrospective studies about a plantar arch that's intact, whether or not it's beneficial. And mm -hmm. the, the cohorts of like 200, 300 patients, I think from a few years ago, even they, and up to now, they showed and rendezvous registries, they looked at and they showed that there was improved uh, limb salvage with an intact plantar arch. And that was shown for bypass with the native condo and for just endovascular intervention. So there's some truth to it, um, but I think you have to learn to classify which patients may benefit from it. And that's what we need to understand. So if you're doing it because you think there's a, there's a perfusion benefit, then that absolutely you should try. But doing it just to do it because your wire happened to go across, that's, yeah. that's detrimental because every time you touch a vessel, you're starting the clock. Mm -hmm. You're starting the inflammation. You're starting the reaction. It's going to go down at some point. So don't touch a vessel that's fine and you don't need to because that's going to be another problem. So you're just trying to heal that wound or improve the quality of life. You're trying to prevent that, that above ankle. Totally. Uh, that, that's, that's really good words of advice. I mean, um, any, any kind of follow-up specifically to pedal interventions, you know, when we do these non-invasive imaging, um, and, and, uh, you know, at least our techs, they don't even really scan our pedal arteries. I mean, we, I, I'll, I'm lucky when I get a distal AT or, or distal PT waveform um, in my practice. Is there anything that you've incorporated or, or you suggest or, or suggest we even study or look into for, for follow-up on pedal, um, yeah, whether it's I MRI or, or anything else? Well, you know, I, I, the MRIs and stuff, I feel that's hard to get in the first place for most yeah. of these patients. It's, it's a nightmare. Um, totally. I think... Number one, seeing them, touching them, seeing the wound, checking for tones, pulses. Uh, hopefully you've improved perfusion where you can at least get some tones now. Um, that's very critical. You know, I think uh, a lot of people are asking about these other technologies with perfusion software. And, you know, mm -hmm. Zola has shown some really cool stuff from New Orleans yeah. with the perfusion mapping. And there's another device that I'm playing around with just to kind of see where they look at. I think I mentioned earlier about looking at the change in uh, uh, oxygenated hemoglobin that comes in that area. Mm -hmm. So that'll help. Uh, Jill Somerset from Northwest um, in the U.S. up in Washington, I believe. She's done some fantastic work with that pedal acceleration time. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. We don't use that, but it's something really interesting to see how that plays out. I don't know if you've... Uh, I haven't. I haven't either, but I, I've definitely... It's it's pretty exciting stuff and, and hands up to Jill uh, for, for doing all it that. Seems, it seems... It makes sense. It makes sense, right? You're, you're actually it's basically a waveform, a distal waveform. And, right. and you know, um, again, like I'm saying, I don't even get waveforms in the foot, um, uh, from, from my text, but, um, this is, it, it makes sense. And I think it's a, it's a great, um, thing to add to practice. I think the limitation can. is going to be, uh, getting the text to learn, uh, yeah. to learn how to do this. Cause it, I, can what I can tell, like yeah. change all the angles and everything, right? And I think it takes, the exam takes a little bit of a while from what I can gather, which, you know, which is fine. And I think it's totally worthy if we can prove that it has benefit. But her, the way she's described it with, you know, the four categories of uh, the P8, the pedal acceleration time and how it relates, they've already shown that it has value that relates to ABIs. But most of our patients, you can't compress them anyway. So this may be a great adjunct. The other thing I'll say is uh, I try to get toe pressures in any patients that still have toes. Because we know that um, the ABIs really don't mean much. So yeah. um, I think toe pressures are critical if they still have toes, um, <laughs> which is yeah. unfortunate. It's unfortunate that some patients don't have, to, you know, they yeah. may not have toes, but uh, if they have a toe, get a toe pressure because that's going to be at least something better that you can rely on 
Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, toe pressures, pad. I mean, we, we talked about pad imaging actually uh, with Jill and Dr. Constantino. Yeah. Uh, talked about episode 90. And so people can kind of learn and, and get that. I mean, um, and, and learn about PAT um, and all these other kind of, I think the, the frontier is going to, or the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of developments. You mentioned perfusion imaging. Uh, but I love how the first thing you replied to me when I asked you, how do you follow up? You said, feel and touch the patient. I mean, we all think, you know, imaging, imaging, um, as, as, um, IRs and radiologists, we think that too, but, but it's so important. These are clinical patients, right? So you are seeing your wound, you are, um, uh, seeing how the wound is changing and evolving after your intervention. And that is the most important. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. we've all been there. We, I mean, we, in everything that we do in the interventional space, uh, imaging is great, but how the patient's doing is, is paramount, right? Yeah. And every type of intervention that we take, I mean, you do a lot of neuro stuff. You're going to, you're going to put a lot of your, uh, decision-making as a follow-up or the next intervention based on how they're doing. It's not about how the test is doing. It's about, there's a lot of variability in testing and non-diagnostic interpretation. All we know that. So I think yeah. seeing the patient, feeling them, see how they're feeling, um, you know, seeing the wound, talking to your wound care, podiatrist, surgeon, whoever's doing it in, you know, weekly, that's going to be critical. And the family members, I can't stress that enough to our trainees, yeah. um, having the families involved, because a lot of these patients are maybe not the best at, you know, their own selves or taking care of themselves, but a lot of them, if you just probe them and involve them, have very caring family members that'll be part of the team and, and make their outcome a lot better. Totally. Yeah. No, the, that, was, that was great, Kumar. I mean, um, you know, we really are just, you know, every, every day is, is a learning thing in, in, in um, endovascular intervention. And, and I thought this was a great discussion on pedal loop. I mean, it's, it's the hot buzz right now. And, and I'm really kind of excited to see, you know, where things go from here. But uh, that was really awesome, man. I mean, anything yeah. else for our listeners you'd say, you know, to to watch out for or words of wisdom from <laughs> Dr. Medassery? No, I, have, I mean, listen, man, I, there's a lot more people above us who are, you know, help pioneer and do a lot of great stuff that we still, I think what we need to keep uh, pressing upon everybody is to kind of increase the awareness to everybody out there for these patients because we're dealing with these patients at their terminal stage of arterial disease. It's, it's arterial cancer, right? Like we call mm-hmm. it. So what we need to do is do a better job of spearheading this ahead of time to catch this, treat this stuff ahead of time, optimize them where to the point where you and me don't have to play in that pedal arch space, yeah. optimize it to a point where they're not facing a major amputation. You know, that that's what we need to do. So that comes by awareness and it's cool that we do all these, you know, four hour procedures, but if the patient never had to have that procedure in the first place because of prevention, I think it'll be better off. Um, tibial stents that are coming out that are better. There's more technology coming out that's better. Again, we don't, we don't know. We got to see, but I think if we all work towards doing something to improve the patient, talking to each other, respecting each other and educating everybody about what can be done, uh, collaboratively and everybody throws a collaborative word around yeah. at the end of the day, everybody wants to do their own, but it's for the, it, it should be for the, the, the betterment of patients. So if you can do it, in whatever way to improve a patient's outcome and demonstrate that. And we can all, you know, be open for judgment and critique in a professional manner. I think that's fine. It's good. Yeah. Good discourse. So hopefully we get to a better spot with that because we see a lot of ups and downs everywhere. So I think we need to all just take a step back and, you know, uh, appreciate what everyone's trying to do. It's just coming from a different angle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, well, great. I mean, well, um, you mentioned some papers about uh, about outflow and pedal arch uh, intact. We'll actually post some of those because yeah, I know in 
so people and listeners can kind of see um, uh, about uh, exactly what you're talking about. And also yeah, they should they the, should look up the rendezvous registry and then yeah. uh, from Asia yeah. the Egashami. and then you know we had published some small series of like 30 patients with Rutherford four or five and you know we had some of the high 90s for limb out limb preservation so. It's smaller sets, but, but it's smaller sets, but there's more and more out there because more That's people nice. doing it. But we need to all look at our own data and find where the limitations are, see where the failure modes are and go from there. Yeah. Perfect. Well, good. Well, Kumar, it's always great, man. It's it's great having you back and uh look forward to another episode with you soon. Dude. This is great. I'm really proud of uh, what you guys are doing. This is fantastic. Uh, how it's progressed over the years. It's been great. I think it's a great tool for all practitioners. Cool, man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it.